Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to our first reading, which is going to be in 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, just before the passage that we're reading, Elijah, the, the prophet, has been battling against the false gods and the false prophets and the, um, the uh, kings of the time, the evil kings of the time, and he is just about to appoint a man named Elisha uh, as his um, replacement. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19. Verse 19, so he, that is Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Our second reading comes from the passage that Pastor Ben is going to be preaching from today, Luke chapter 9, from the second half of verse 43. Luke chapter 9. Second half of verse 43. Verse 43. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him on his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me for he who is least among you all is the one who is great john answered master we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us but jesus said to him do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds have the air, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. 
And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is God's word to us. Thanks for reading the Bible, Steve, and good morning to everyone. Well, actually, not morning anymore. It's good afternoon, everyone. How's everyone doing? Good. Sonia's about the only one who's alive here. Got a couple of smiling faces. Yes, a few more now. Okay, good. It's great to see everyone here in uh, Ryan's Road, as well as uh, um, on on YouTube, on screen. Um, Especially those in Singapore. I think there's about 25, 30 out of you meeting together in homes, which is great. Uh, And wherever else in the world that you're watching in from, uh, welcome to SLE Church today. Um, it's great to see um, same old faces, I guess, in the second service. There's a lot of space in the second service. So if you do want to come every week, because there's a lot of space, come along. Uh, if you do want to come along uh, and you're part of 9 o'clock usually, uh, that's fine too. You can actually come along to the 11.40 service. Now, we are continuing our series uh, in Luke's Gospel, where we're looking at the middle uh, kind of few chapters. Uh, and just to let you know that we will actually be continuing on uh, in Luke uh, after uh, the six-week block looking at discipleship. Um, so I'll be preaching out of the way till next week. It'll be my fifth sermon for the series, uh, and then Steve will be picking up from there. So if you want to read on in Luke's Gospel, please do so. Now, we are going to be um, sitting under this passage today, so keep that open in front of you, Luke chapter 9. And if you do have an outline that you've downloaded from the church website or from the Facebook page, uh, follow along on that, and that might help as well. Uh, but the most important thing that we can do right now is to pray Uh, because we need God's help with this very, very confronting passage. Let's pray. The Lord Jesus warned us that not all who call on him as Lord, Lord, are truly his. And that one day, uh, on that final judgment day, he may actually turn us aside to tell us that we do not actually belong to him. Uh, Father, this is a grave warning from our Lord Jesus. That not all who call themselves Christians, not all who claim to follow Jesus, not all who call him Lord, as many of us do, are actually truly following Jesus. And so we pray, Father, that today you would remove whatever ignorance or deception or lies about the truth uh, of following Jesus away. That you would take those those lies away so that we may understand the truth of what it means to truly follow Jesus. In Jesus' words in this passage, uh, we pray that as confronting and as radical as they might be, uh, that your spirit will be taking it and planting it into our hearts and minds, that we might truly trust in him and follow Jesus. Please help us, we pray in his name. Amen. Now, wasn't it wonderful uh, last week uh, to be able to receive some much-needed encouragement uh, from last week's passage? As we saw the disciples uh, being able to get a glimpse of Jesus' future glory uh, and majesty, up on that mountaintop experience, as well as in the broken valley uh, of brokenness and, 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 and faithlessness. Uh, and for us today, as we saw last week, we are able to even get a greater understanding of God's word uh, and experience a greater work of God in our own lives and the lives of the people around us. So hopefully you were encouraged uh, last week. Now, as we continue on in Luke's gospel, we'll, we see that having had this experience, the disciples' hearts would have been full, but it would seem that their minds are still empty. Right? It still seems like they had so much more to learn. Right? They were encouraged in their hearts, but their heads seemed to be rather empty. It seems like they were very caught up with the majesty of Jesus, and they failed to understand what it really meant 
to follow a Christ who would suffer, who would be rejected, who would be crucified before he is raised in glory. We will see that they, they seem to have this expectation that following Jesus meant a life that would be more victorious, that would be more successful, that would be easier and more comfortable. Right? And strangely enough, this view of Jesus, this view of following Jesus still remains popular today. There are many Christians who expect that the Christian life means that you actually have a, a better and easier life of greater success, that you'll be more better provided for, you'll have a greater influence, that you'll be healthier and wealthier and happier. In short, becoming a Christian or being a Christian is a ticket right, to the better life, right, the good life now. But the teaching of Jesus Christ himself in our passage today shows us something entirely different. Uh, the, the big message is that the Christian life is a costly life. It's costly. We are called to, to give up things that we hold dear. We will, we will have to uh, drastically and radically change our lives' priorities. It will cost you the life that you have been living for before and give that life over to Jesus and to live for his priorities and, and his ways in the future. You will lose your life now in order that you might gain it in the future. Now, it's not a message that's sweet and easy on the ears. Right? This, this is not a message that is a, a, a motivational speech that you'll go home feeling super light and super happy after having come. Right? Now, there's a time and place for a nice motivational speech, but I think the, 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 the message that we need to hear today is something that is strong and confronting and radical. Because it is better to know the truth and the reality of being a Christian than to live in ignorance and in lies. For the warning that Jesus gave to his disciples is that not all who call on Jesus as Lord, Lord, will be received by Jesus into his eternal kingdom. Not all of us today who call ourselves Christian might actually be following Jesus. And the consequences of not actually following Jesus is drastic and it's terrible. But the, the blessing, the good news, is that we do follow Jesus. If we truly are Christians, it will be eternally worth it. Eternally worth it. Now, as we read on from Luke chapter 9, verse 43, we're hit with a huge contrast, aren't we? From marveling at the majesty of Jesus, we see a, a kind of a backstabbing betrayal and rejection that will come. But the applause and the adulation from the crowd will not last. Because we know that Jesus is on a journey. He's headed toward Jerusalem, his exodus, right, his departure, where he will suffer, he will be rejected, and he will be crucified. This is a Jesus, a Christ, who will bear a heavy cost, a very heavy cost, to become king and savior. And we're reminded of this midway through this passage in verse 51, right? He set his face towards Jerusalem. And every time we read the word Jerusalem in the following chapters of Luke's gospel, we know it's a shorthand for his suffering, his rejection, and his crucifixion, his earthly destiny that awaits him. And so Jesus tells his disciples, picking up from verse 44, let these words sink in. Let these words sink in. Right? You're, you're, you're hearing me, but you're not really hearing me. Right? You're, not, you're not feeling me, brothers, is what he's saying to them. You're not really understanding what's going on. You don't get it. As we'll clearly see in the scenes that follow, they really don't. And we're told in verse 45 that there is a divine reason for this. 
That the full understanding of, of what Jesus is saying and who Jesus really is is kind of concealed from them at this moment. God had not yet given them full insight. It wasn't time for them to fully know what's going on. And perhaps this kind of divine, uh, impo- divinely imposed ignorance on the disciples would, would make them yearn to find out more. Right? They don't know. Maybe they would want to find out more. They want to pay closer attention to listen and to learn. But we also see that their lack of understanding isn't entirely just God's doing. Right? It isn't just God's doing. It was their own fear, as we read, that prevented them from asking. The disciples put their own part. They, they, they knew they didn't know what was going on, but they were too scared to ask. They were ignorant, but too scared to ask. And, and it's a warning for us, isn't it? We need to make sure that we don't really understand, that we ask and that we find out what is the truth. Now, these disciples, they wouldn't learn by asking, but Jesus graciously will keep teaching. He'll keep teaching. And in verses 46 to 62, we get six crucial lessons on the cost of following Jesus. Right, the first three lessons in verses 46 to 56 challenges the wrong mindset about power. Disciples need to learn that following Jesus will cost us our pride. And then in the second three lessons in verses 57 to 62 challenges our priorities. Disciples need to learn that following Jesus costs us personally in a very deep and a very confronting way. Pride and priorities. Let's get into it. Verse 46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now, Jesus had just been talking about the lows that he's about to face. And here we have the disciples arguing about who would be the best, right? who would be the greatest, who would be on top when it came to the, the disciples and the inner circle of Jesus' friends. It's weird, isn't it? And where in, so many, in so many of us, there's an inbuilt, sinful, competitive desire to be better than others, isn't there? We all want to be either the best at something, or at least we want to be better than other people. Right? We thrive on competitiveness and comparison. So often how good or bad we feel about ourselves is in relation to other people, in comparison to other people. So maybe it's the marks in school, even though a lot of us will say, oh, we don't really care what other people get. But then you're always interested to know what other people did, to know where you sit, and maybe feel jealous or, or proud of yourself or on the sporting field, or, or perhaps if you have children, we start to compete on children and their, and their abilities and their achievements, don't we? Even how we go about serving God can, can become a bit of a competition. Back in the days, you know, when we used to bring stuff for morning tea, you know, we look at what other people brought. Did they bake or did they buy, right? And if they bake, is it something like really nice and from, you know, grandmother's recipe handed down, or is it just something from Betty Crocker, right, in a packet? And then we feel like we want to compete even in ministry. You know, you compete about you know, how many people we're meeting out with and, and our ability to teach the Bible and how many converts we've been able to, to, to make over the years. And we just find ways to compete and compare in just about every area of our lives. The disciples were caught up with this kind of comparison about who would be greatest. But then Jesus teaches them that it's not about being greatest. It's about, be, it's about greatness. 
not greatest. You get it? Greatness. And what is this greatness that Jesus teaches about that is so different from being the greatest? Well, he brings an illustration. He brings a child to his side. And he tells the disciples, whoever receives a child, whoever would serve this child, whoever would welcome and value this child, that is the one that is the greatest. And you kind of wonder, what, what kind of lesson is this? But you understand that in this culture, in their culture, children were really not valued. They were not valued. Why? Because children have nothing to offer. Right, we've got the Queen of Sand politicians going around, door knocking and all that at the moment. They won't bother wasting time talking to a child because a child can't vote for them. They will only talk to citizens of Australia who will be able to vote. Well, when we do things for children, especially as a parent, you know that they don't really do anything back for you. You give, give, give. They take, take, take. That is the job. That is the right of children, it seems, right? Now, you expect them at a certain age to start giving back, but they, don't really don't do, they never really do, do they? Okay? But this is the children. Is you do stuff for them. They don't do stuff for you. They take. They don't give. It was true back then, and it's still true for us today, that when you serve children, you better be serving with an expectation and hope of repayment. To serve a child is to serve sacrificially and humbly and generously. Now, to add an even greater exclamation point, Jesus says that to receive a child and to serve a child is, is to also is to express service to Jesus and to his Father who sent him. True greatness, Jesus says, is found in service to the least according to the world's standards because serving them is about serving God the Son, and God the Father. And so the contrast is clear. Wanting to be greatest is about pride. It's competition and comparison. Wanting greatness, it's about humble service. The complete opposite of pride. True greatness is wanting to be below someone to serve them without something in return. Following and serving Jesus will cost us our pride. It's about being willing to serve those who can't or who won't pay us back. This is the greatness that is available and encouraged for all believers to have. Not for us to compare who can do it better, but for all of us to have this greatness of humble service. Now, obviously, Jesus is using just a child as an example or someone we serve humbly uh, and, 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 and without return, but it isn't just children that we serve. That being said, I do want to actually give a shout out to all who do serve children in our church. Um, I know we, we highlight them once in a while, but I think it really is worth highlighting given how much uh, sacrifice is needed to serve children who really don't respond necessarily in the way we hope sometimes. And the efforts that you put in as uh, kids, church teachers and helpers uh, is really appreciated. And I really do hope that a wider church community can see your costly and humble service as an example for all of us as we apply a passage like this. And moving on, we see that from the desire to be greatest, we move on to the grasping for exclusiveness. Verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, the disciples, they saw themselves as being in the inner circle with Christ. We know that they're given authority 
to do Jesus' kingdom work, right? Chapter 9, verse 1, right? They were given the authority over sickness and over demons to, to, to do Jesus' work. And they were really not happy when they started noticing that other people were doing Jesus' kingdom work as well, right? They're kind of like the kids at school who are in the in crowd, or perhaps those workers in a big company who kind of have the inside line, right, to the influential boss or the director. They have this connection, right? They have this exclusivity. They have these privileges and this status in the company. And we all love that stuff, right, to be on the inside. And we want to protect that, that elevated privilege and status. And then we start getting upset, right, when other people seem to, to be getting in on this exclusivity. And the disciples, they wanted exclusive rights in Jesus' kingdom work. They wanted to be the only ones with the power to heal and to cast out the demons and to preach the gospel. But that's not how Jesus works. It's not how Christianity works. Jesus isn't here to feed our selfish desires for exclusivity or privilege or status. He's not there to give us bragging rights over other people. Following and serving Christ is a privilege for all of his followers. The status of having Jesus as our King and Savior and for us to be his servants is a privilege for all of us to enjoy. Collaboration and cooperation, partnership, fellowship, unity, these are all fundamental to what it means to be Jesus' followers. Yet how often do we see in Christian circles a sinful and unhealthy competitive spirit. We put others down so we can elevate ourselves. We fail to rejoice and be in partnership with the, success, the successes of other people's ministry when they're serving Christ. Now, of course, there is discernment as to what truly is faithful Christian ministry, but there are many churches, there are many Christians who are faithfully serving Christ that we can support and rejoice with. And yet sometimes isn't there this jealousy, right? When others seem to be succeeding and we're not. Isn't there sometimes this pride, this pride, this proudness when we see that we are doing better than other people? And this can happen to us as individuals or it can happen to us as entire ministries, as a church. We need to be reminded that there are many people serving Christ around us. There are many churches around this city, in this country, the world that are trying to faithfully serve Christ. Let's put away that competitive spirit. Let's rejoice that Christ's kingdom work is being done by many people right, for the glory of Jesus. And if there is a chance for us to collaborate and to cooperate and to be in partnership, let us seek to do so if there is the opportunity. Now we move on to the next lesson in this first block of three, right, where we get to verse 51, and we're reminded of Jesus' mission, that he's headed towards Jerusalem. And through this journey uh, from Galilee down, we pass by through Samaria. And here in Samaria, Jesus is rejected, which is not unexpected. If you know Samaria, if you know the Samaritans and the Jews, they were arch enemies, right? They were mortal arch enemies uh, for centuries at this stage. Uh, they hated each other, right? Now, the disciples, they respond to rejection of Jesus by wanting immediate judgment, right? Bring down the nukes on these guys, and wipe them out now is what they want Jesus to do, right? These disgusting Samaritans who just rejected you, wipe them out now. Now, on one hand, it's not an unreasonable demand. Uh, those who oppose God and his Christ will face judgment. 
Right? How dare you oppose God and oppose his king? The disciples don't actually ask from God what God won't, actually, uh, won't eventually do to those who oppose him. And their call for immediate judgment, in some sense, would be out of zeal for Jesus, right? They, 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 they care about the honor of Christ, that they care about him being rejected. No doubt. But as we've seen in the context of what the disciples are like, no doubt there's also a an, 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 an kind of personal sense of retaliation that they want, that their personal pride was being heard, uh, hurt. Right? They, they also want, from their own personal insult, to see these enemies nuked right here, right now. Anyway, it's like the disciples thought of themselves as being friends right, with, the, with the big guy in the school, right, the, the school bully, let's be honest. And now that they're on the insider, they're on the inside, they have this new strut as they walk around the school. And if anyone were to go against them, well, they've now got the, the power to bring down the judgment, right, to exert the, uh, the authority and power over other people. And perhaps sometimes Christians can be like that, right? We sneer at those who are outsiders, at our rejectors, at the immoral. And sometimes we may quietly or maybe openly wish swift and immediate judgment on those who oppose Christ and those who persecute us. And we think to ourselves, you know, just you wait. That judgment is coming, right? And we are kind of glad about that. But Jesus rebukes his disciples. He doesn't give an explicit reason, but the context helps us to fill in the blanks. Where is Jesus going? He's going to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world, to bring forgiveness. Now is the time for grace. Now is the time of hope, of proclaiming the message of grace and hope, not to be bringing down, hauling down judgment on sinners. It's now time to be proclaiming the message of grace and hope. And so Jesus is saying, swallow your pride in wanting retaliation. Time of grace. Time to bear the cost to preach the gospel. Against opposition and persecution and injustice, bear those costs so you can bring grace and hope to the people around you. It's a call for followers to be willing to humble ourselves, to devote ourselves to bring salvation to others in the face of opposition, just as Jesus did. So, Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem. He's just been rejected at Samaria. He's about to, be, to suffer even more in order to become that king and savior. I'll begin to get a picture for what it looks like to follow Jesus. The three lessons so far shows us that it will cost our pride <clears throat> because we have a king who humbly serves. There are three more lessons to come. And through three dialogues with three unnamed individuals, we get some really radical and confronting lessons for what it means to follow Jesus. And if you want to take a moment right now just to pray within your hearts that God will speak to you, because I'm going to say some very strong things that Jesus said. Are we ready? Following Jesus comes at a cost, huge cost of our personal priorities, and the first one is priority over our earthly comforts. Verse 57. As they were going along on the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Can you imagine that? I will follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. I wonder whether this guy knows what he is saying. I wonder whether he knows what he's in for. What does he think that following Jesus 
looks like? Well, Jesus tells him, if he didn't already know, verse 58, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus was a king that had no palace. He didn't even have a home to stay in. He was materially deficient. He was on the move. He was on mission. He was ministering to people, making his way to Jerusalem, to the cross, in order to bring in the kingdom. He lived light to the things of this world when it came to stuff. Now, writing this part of the sermon this week was incredibly confronting because I sat there on my table and I realized that I have a lot of stuff. I have a lot of stuff. I'm a real tech junkie, right? I love my tech. I love my stuff. And as I write this sermon, this part of the sermon, it was incredibly confronting and challenging. Because Jesus lived a simple life without material distractions. And so it got me wondering, why does it seem to me that the first world Christians that I am and that I know live so out of step, so out of sync with the kind of life that Jesus lived? Why is it that Jesus did not enjoy the earthly material comforts of this world, yet we cannot live without them? We cannot live without our earthly comforts. And yet the Lord Jesus that we claim to follow, he never had these earthly comforts. Now don't get me wrong. There is nothing inherently wrong with material possessions. God created a material world. God wants to provide for our needs, our food, our drink, our shelter, our clothing. God even blesses some with riches and wealth. He's not created a dull world, but a beautiful world where we have beautiful things to have and to enjoy. But God never created for us to live for them or to stockpile them or to trust in them or to pursue them or to find stability in them. And yet, isn't that what we do with our material things? Consider just our view of house and home. It's one of those core possessions that we build our lives upon as, 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 as our stable platform. And so, when it comes to a place to live, perhaps we start out because we can't afford to, by finding a, a decent place to rent. And we have our criteria for that, and we need to find that rental place to find security, right? And then after that, we start to find a place to own. And then after that, we try and find a, a place to invest in, a second property, and so on. And wherever we, where we live, whether it's a rental or a family home or an investment property, it dominates so much of our identity and purpose. It dominates how secure and safe that we feel. It, it dominates how much we have to work in order to pay back the rent or the mortgage. It, it dominates how much we spend our money on it and in it, renovating and decorating and entertaining. Right, the place that we lay our heads can be such an idol for us. Yet Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his head upon. Now besides home, and this, this passage I guess refers to that, but besides home there are other material comforts and possessions that we covet in life. That, that we, we find that we need to have for comfort and, and security and pleasure and stability. There's so many things in life that we, we, just, we just idolize, isn't it? And Jesus says, this is not following me. This is not following me. Following Jesus, it would seem, will have a great impact on our lifestyle. Following Jesus should mean 
living a simpler, less luxurious and comfortable life. Because we are more caught up with living for Him and pursuing His kingdom purposes than we are in pursuing the treasures and the pleasures and the comforts of this world. Now, I wonder, do you find this encouraging or off-putting? Do you find this encouraging or off-putting? It really reveals the state of our hearts, isn't it? On the one hand, if your heart is sold out to Jesus, is if you believe that your life belongs to Him now and that the, the eternity we have with Him will be glorious and blessed and enough, more than enough, and we are happy to give up all these things here now, then it will be a relief. We're released from the burden of chasing the world and the comforts and the security and the stability the way that the world does. We can go about our business of living this world and having enough and not worrying about discomfort when it comes. On the other hand, if we don't really believe that Jesus is truly the eternal king, if we don't truly believe that he is enough, then this would be very off-putting. Why would I not want to enjoy the fruits of my labor? Why would I not want to pursue a greater ease and comfort and enjoyment of this life? And so the question always remains, is Jesus, who is Jesus really to you? Is Jesus worth it? Is he worth following? That is and will always remain the key and fundamental question to answer. Because if he is Christ and your life belongs to him and you're so happy about that, you're so happy about the life that is to come, then these things, they make sense. But if he is not, then none of this makes sense. Now let's continue on. That's only the first of the three lessons here, and I think it gets harder. All right, verse 59. Jesus calls now a man to follow him. The second person comes along and calls him to follow Jesus. All right, Jesus calls him to follow him. But funnily enough, Jesus doesn't allow this man's request to go and bury his father first. Now it seems incredibly harsh. What's wrong with going to bury your father? It seems like a totally reasonable request. It would seem like it's a responsibility of a son, especially an older son. We're not sure if he's the older son, but if he was, it's the responsibility of a Jewish older son to bury their father. Now, we're not really told um, what's really going on here in terms of what context this is. Some people you know, wonder whether it's the, the, the father is already dead, right? And so he wants to go home and bury the father. It would be kind of weird for the man to be already dead and the man's walking around the streets, right? Getting Jesus to call him to follow him. Or it could be that the father is on his deathbed and, uh, and he's about to die any time, imminent. And the son wants to just wait for that and, and bury his father. Or it could be that maybe it's just some excuse. Right? Down the track, in a months and years and decades time, maybe my father will die and then I will bury him, then I will come and follow you. Now we're not entirely sure what the context is, but I think what is clear here is not that, uh, that that's not important. That's not the detail that we're given. The key here is to do with priority. The key word in this statement that man makes is, let me first go and bury my father. Now let's be clear here, right, that the Bible affirms honoring of our parents and providing and caring for them. But what Jesus is saying here is that our first priority is to Jesus. Jesus says in verse 60, let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The first and most important priority and responsibility is to be proclaiming the kingdom of God, is to be on Jesus' mission. 
Now, for the disciples and followers here in Luke chapter 9, there seems to be a particular time-sensitive mission. There's an immediacy in which this, this response needs to be made because Jesus is on the journey towards Jerusalem, right, for his exodus. The kingdom of God was near, we're told. <coughs> it's time-critical. <coughs> in chapter 10, just a few verses later, the thing that follows next, Jesus actually sends 72 disciples out on this mission where they don't bring money, they don't bring a bag, they don't bring extra change of clothes. It's time-sensitive. And perhaps today, for us, this time-critical mission of the disciples back then doesn't apply to us in the exact same way. And so we're not literally told to just pack our bags right now and follow Jesus, nor are we to avoid saying goodbye to our families and just leave them uh, so that we can go on Jesus' mission. But I think the principle that remains true is this. Living for Christ and doing His work takes priority over everything else. It means that we don't put off living for Christ and serving Christ until we've gotten our other priorities sorted out first. Not sometime down the track after I've taken care of family matters, you know, after the children have, have grown up and have left the home. It's not after I've finished studying in primary school or, or in university uh, or after my post-grad. It isn't after, until after I found a spouse, because you know, it's, it's hard to serve God as a single person, so I need to wait till I get married first. It's not till after I've had children, or, or multiple children, and then I'm ready to serve Jesus. It's not till after I build up my, S, my, my nest egg and have and security in my shares and in my investments. It's not after, until I looked after my grandkids, right? after I helped up my children with their kids, until they're, they're independent. Not later. Jesus says, not later, now. Live for Jesus, now. Obey Him, now. Serve Him, now. Proclaim the kingdom, now. Get trained up in ministry, now. Go into MTS, be a missionary, become a pastor. Whatever it is that's the best thing, the right thing for you to do now, in your situation, do that now. See, the other things, the relationships, the studies, the work, whatever they are, they fit around the number one priority that is Jesus, living for him and serving him. And so the reality is this. If you're too busy studying, you're too busy working, dating, parenting, grandparenting, traveling, investing, playing, entertaining, whatever it is, then clearly Jesus and his mission isn't your first priority. Jesus allows for no excuses. None. Follow me is his command to his disciples now. Not after you finish that assignment, not after you finish that work project, not after you finish raising the kids. You serve Jesus faithfully now while you do those things, or maybe you shouldn't be doing some of those things in order that you might put Jesus first. And so once again, we have to ask ourselves, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is he really your king? If he is, then he ought to be your number one priority. Everything else fits around him and his purposes. Now, these are very radical and confronting words, aren't they? And I certainly don't find them easy to say because I, I struggle with this too. 
And I think we will all struggle, we will continue to struggle with putting Jesus first because we are so used to putting ourselves first. But there's still one more lesson to go. <clears throat> and perhaps this is the hardest of them all. I'll be ready to listen to God's word and let it sink in. Yeah, another would be a follower approaches Jesus <clears throat> in verse 61. <clears throat> I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Now, come on, this seems like a completely reasonable request, doesn't it? Let me first go home and say bye to my family. And as we heard before in 1 Kings 19, uh, when Elijah asked Elisha to follow him, actually, he didn't really ask Elisha, Elisha just wanted to follow him um, into prophetic ministry work. Elisha asked Elijah whether he can go home first and give a kiss goodbye to his parents, right? And Elijah lets him. Now, we kind of wonder, why is Jesus more extreme than Elijah? But then you've got to wonder, is Jesus actually being more extreme than Elijah? What is Elisha doing when he requests for this go-home time? Now, if you know, if you, heard, if you remember the reading before, Elisha was, was a farmer, and he had oxen who were plowing the field, and he was following behind the 12th kind of lot of oxen doing that, right? Now, what does he do when he gets, gets home? If you go back and read 1 Kings 19, when he, what he does when he gets home is he slaughters his oxen that's being used for his farming, and after having slaughtered them, what does he do? He gets the plow, the plowshares, the wooden things that hold the oxen together, and he uses that as the firewood to be burnt up to cook this oxen that he's just slaughtered. What is he doing? Is he not burning his past life, putting that behind him? All his tools of trade as a farmer, he was burning it up because now he would be single-mindedly devoted to a new way. Single-mindedly devoted to a new way. No looking back, he's burned it all. No turning back, he's burned it all. Single-minded devotion to following Jesus. Jesus is not first priority just for a little while. And then you go back to other priorities for a phase in life, during your exam time, during busy work periods, when the first child comes, when the fourth child comes, when retirement comes, and then suddenly you pick it back up again for Jesus. Following Jesus means that he will always and ever be first. Always and ever be first. He says in verse 62, have a look at verse 62. Scary verse, right? No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. To put your hand on the plow is to direct the oxen forward in the farming work. You turn away and the farming will just get messed up. You'll just go off track, right? And you won't do your job. Jesus says, you stick your hand on the plow and you stay there, single-mindedly, following Jesus, right? Single-mindedly following Jesus. No looking back. Let go of the things you once held dear. What you plan to achieve in, in the past way of thinking, your academics, your career, your sports, your music, or a relationship that you desperately want to have, or the, or the worldly or culturally or personally driven desires to raise your children, uh, the dreams that you have for your children, or the cushy, comfy retirement plans that you've drawn up for yourself and you're wanting to live. Jesus says, let go of all those things and focus on me. Always. Right? Now, a lot of uni students in the second service, a lot of young people, uni is the best time of our lives, isn't it? For many of us, we are pretty free, maybe 10 to, 10, 10 to 12 contact hours. 
And even then, we can watch, you know, whatever our lectopia is on two times speed, and then it becomes five hours, right? And then we might spend a few more hours doing other things, and then we've got all this time, right? We've got to ES, we've got to power the change, we've got to uh, we'll listen to other YouTube talks from Tim Keller, and then we go and meet up with people one-on-one, -on -one, maybe three or four people, we've got to YF or, or, or Sunday YF, and then we go to church, and we spend, what, 15, 20 hours serving Jesus. But then, what happens? So work starts. And then if you know the workers in our church, depending on their career, suddenly all those things drop off, and suddenly they're not even there on church on every Sunday, let alone fellowship group. One-on-ones, that was the uni days. Training, that was the uni days. Same thing with parenting, right? You're, you're single, then you get married, you and your wife. We get married for the partnership of God, right? Married for God, serve God together. And then suddenly the children come, and then life changes completely. Now, of course life will change when you have a child, but does it change completely? Jesus says, follow me. Let my plans and my ways shape your life. Shape the way that you study and the way that you work and the way that you play. Shape the relationships that you have and the relationships that you don't have. Shape the hopes and dreams you have for your children and shape the way that you use your retirement. If your hands are really on the plow and you're not looking back, it should be obvious to you every day as you look at yourself in the mirror. You look at yourself in the mirror and go, is it clear as I look at myself that I am single-mindedly following Jesus? It should be clear to the people around us your housemates, your family, your children, friends and church, even people that, that don't like you, it should be clear to them that you're sold out for Jesus. Because you're the person who makes decisions where, where Jesus' priorities and his, and, his, and his principles come first. Where his proclaiming his kingdom comes first. How does our life look when we look in the mirror, when others look at us? Because Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Isn't that scary? It's, the, it's that not all who call Lord, Lord actually belongs to me, belongs to Jesus. Let's conclude. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to you? Because Jesus is the Christ, God's King and Savior, the question is whether you really believe that in your heart, whether you believe that in your mind, in, your, in the whole of your being. Do you really believe that Jesus is worth it, that he's worth giving your life over to? Because if you do believe this, then firstly, we need to know that we need help from God to keep believing this and living this out. Right? As even as I wrote this sermon, even as I preach it, I know it, it sounds incredibly daunting and difficult. And we really do need to go on our knees, in our hearts, before God, asking for His strength, for His grace, for His Spirit to be at work, to help us to truly trust and live for Jesus in this way. But having done that, this passage calls us for reflection, for, for, for application, to ask ourselves, what, what, what needs to change in my life? What attitudes or power or pride need to change? What do I need to give up now to better follow Jesus? What is it that is stopping me right now and has been stopping me all these years from really being single-mindedly devoted to Jesus? What do I need to get rid of my life? What do I need to minimize in my life for me to be able to follow Jesus? And on the positive side, we can ask, what do we need to add into our lives? 
What, what kind of helps can we receive that will help us to follow Jesus? Now think about this long and hard, right? This is not something that will be solved in a click of a finger or a, or a flick of a switch. <clears throat> it requires us to be prayerful on our knees every day asking God for help, asking God for grace, asking God for wisdom to reveal to us what is it that's wrong with our following of Jesus, asking for strength to change, asking for forgiveness of all our sins and failures in all of the areas that we've failed. Confess our sins to God. Confess our sins to each other. Ask other people to, 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 to show us our blind spots, to correct our blind spots, to rebuke us when we stray again, to encourage us, encourage us, more encouragement maybe than the rebuke, encourage us to be able to keep going with following Jesus. Recruit all the help that we need. Encourage and pray for one another. Following Jesus is incredibly costly, but it's incredibly worthwhile. The question is, who is Jesus to you, and will you follow him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word cuts us right into our very heart, our very bone marrow, because it reveals to us what is truly real. You don't mince your words or, or make it confusing when you call us to give our lives over to Jesus, when you tell us that to trust in Jesus means to find our life, our identity, our purpose, our being in Him. And yet we know, as you cut us, that our hearts, our minds, our lives are those where we want to live for ourselves, where there is this innate sinfulness and rebellion in us, where we refuse to, to give our lives over to Jesus who made us and who, who is our King and who saves us. And so we pray so much that you will open our minds and it will open our hearts, that your Spirit will be powerfully at work right now and in the days and weeks and months to come, that those of us who call on Jesus as Lord, Lord, will indeed follow him, that we will indeed be true to him, that we would indeed give our lives over to him more and more each day. Help us to avoid the dreadedness of, of thinking that we follow Jesus, but being turned away when we enter heaven's doors or we get to heaven's doors. Help us each day to we really put our lives on the line, give it over to Jesus. You know the things that are holding us back. You know us better than we know ourselves. So please help us, whether it's, it's our desire for, for the things of this world or, or status or achievements or pride or power, or relationship, a girl or a guy, family connection, the hopes and dreams that we have that, that we've gotten from the world or the hopes and dreams placed upon us by our parents. There are so many things that are, are, are pushing us and pulling us away from following Jesus. Please help us to have a single-minded devotion to him. Please help us to see that he is worth it. All this we pray in Jesus' name.